Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. Join me, your host, Alexia Gordon, as I chat with authors writing cozy, traditional, and historical mysteries. You won't find explicit sex or graphic violence. You will find intriguing authors and quality fiction. Thanks for listening. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. I'm Alexia Gordon, author and host of the podcast. Karen Pierce joins me in the corner today to chat about Recipes for Murder, 66 Dishes That Celebrate the Mysteries of Agatha Christie. Welcome, Karen. Nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Alexa. Now, Recipes for Murder is a bit of a twist from the usual works featured on the podcast because it's an actual cookbook. So please tell us about Recipes for Murder. Well, Recipes for Murder began because I'm a big Agatha Christie fan and I'm a big food fan. And one day while surfing on the net the way you do, I decided to look for the Agatha Christie cookbooks. Well, there wasn't any. There's one, it's French, and it's only published in France. So I thought, what would one look like? And, you know, took it from there. I decided just to write it. I don't know what gave me the chutzpah to think that I could do that. (laughs) But uh, I did. And uh, here you go. So I took, what I did was I read each mystery again. I've read them several times. And this time I post-noted every single mention of food had a big spreadsheet and basically just work through each and every novel, what food did in that novel, what role it played. Was there a specific food, you know, that kind of thing until I came up with uh, a recipe that, or, uh, you know, a dish that I wanted to feature. Is recipes for murder your first book? Yep. Oh, congratulations on your debut book. (laughs) Thank you very much. Now, what sort of uh, made you think of, of, you know, all the authors in the world, uh, you know, the food of Agatha Christie? I mean, what, what, what sort of inspired you to Google that particular author as opposed to, I don't know, someone more closely associated with, with food in the public consciousness? Well, um, I'm a big, I'm a big Agatha Christie fan. I started reading when I was a little kid and, um, I've been to a few murder mystery conventions, uh, you know, writers conventions and stuff. And, you know, I always enjoyed it. But then when I finally got to the Agatha Christie Festival, it was like, oh, my goodness, this is where I belong. These are my people. They get it. And so after listening to many speakers there and um, although I'd long started the book before that, I just then, you know, that's when I really began to understand that I could do this book and sell this book, that there there are people who care about this stuff. And Christy herself, I mean, she wrote, she's the most successful novelist in the world. She wrote 66 novels, something like 140 uh, short stories. Uh, I think it's 30 plays, six standalone Mary Westmacott novels and I'm going to say like three or four kind of the autobiography style so 
she's pretty prolific and people have studied a lot, a lot of things about Christine. I, I just thought, but what about the food? <laughs> Cause Christy really does love food. You get it through all our biographies. So, and lots of times, you know, as a, as a young Canadian reader, I'm going, what the heck? What are these things they're talking about? And so, yeah, I set off to do that, to find out what was going on with food in Christy, Christy novels. And um, yeah, that's where it came from. Now you, you said you put together a, a spreadsheet of uh, mentions of food in all of her books. How many did you come up with total when you were done? What's yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I didn't do it like that. But you know what's pretty crazy is some books don't mention food at all. They only ever say, we went in for the meal. We went down for tea. We sat down and had coffee. Like, and that's all you get. Others, they're just riddled with it. You know, lots and lots and lots of food references. So, you know, it was, it was feast or famine with uh, a lot of the books. Well, that brings up a question. Uh, you know, Agatha Christie didn't just put things in there just because or randomly or willy-nilly. I mean, she put it there, it served a purpose. And if Absolutely. it wasn't there, it means it didn't. So what, what kind of uh, role did food play or how did food and beverage sort of, uh, how did Christie use that to advance her plot or her character development? Okay, so she did all of that. Like, the top ones are, you know, she used it to poison people, literally to kill them. And that's actually fairly rare. She more killed with poisons in tonics or, you know, coffees and things like that. Rarely in the food. But, there, you know, there's enough instances where she did poison people right at the table. And sometimes... Those dinners, this is the other point, she used it as a plot point, right? A dinner of a certain group was very much part of the plan of the killer. So she used it a big, big that way, killing people and as a plot. But as a rule, she used it to characterize and to set the settings. And some of them are just so wonderful. Like, um, there's this one scene of lovely Miss Marple in the Caribbean. And the hotelier is trying to talk her into having some nice bread pudding. She's like, no, I want this passion fruit sundae I'm eating right now. She was all about trying new things. And here, you know, she's a 90-year-old woman from the UK, and she's all about trying new things. And that tells you so much what you needed to know about Miss Marple. So, you know, really fun things like that all the way through characterizations. And then she also uses it like in a social class way. You can really tell. Um, one of my favorite dinners I described is in Peril at End House with uh, Nick Buckley. And she's broke, totally broke, but she's having 20 for dinner. So, you know, how do you do that? Well, you do that by using your kitchen garden. You use that by, you know, your cook that comes in every day anyway, because when these people stay broke, they don't mean broke like you or I do. And, you know, the stuff that comes in, she was set in Cornwall that comes in from the sea. So that's what she would do and set these wonderful meals, 
you know, setting the culture so you could tell that this was an upper class group, but, you know, they weren't having bangers and beans. They were, you know, lobster, Newburg, things like that. I think it was an, um, Crime reads, I think, an article you wrote um, where you sort of described how the progression of meals and and then there were none uh, sort of uh, parallel the plot. Can you tell us a little more about that? Well, I thought when I was when I was reading that one, I mean, the whole meal happens in the first first uh, setting of the book because after that everybody's a little rattled, right? And they come down to breakfast and there's less people and there's less care. And, you know, by the end, they're not even eating. <laughs> the last two are eating out of a can. So, yeah, it was really, I spent a long time wondering, should I celebrate the first meal? Or should I look for something that really, you know, kind of gets there right in the middle? And I went with, you know, perfect boiled potatoes because they do fit right there. They're, they're short of eating out of the can. <laughs> they're boiled potatoes there's not much to them so i felt like that was really the number five in uh and then there were none so that was the route i went with that but yeah so interesting things like that another one was um um the body in the library so Dolly Bantry is, you know, fussing, trying to get Jane Marple over to see the body and, you know, and her husband's in the, in the waiting room, kind of looking out the window for the cops. And, you know, he's just eating his marmalade and toast, which she very clearly says. And I thought, well, I wonder if Dolly made that. And so then I had to figure out, could you just make marmalade? And, you know, what was that about? And uh, so, yeah, I made several marmalades until I got one that where you could just make one jar. And that is also another theme of my book. This is stuff you can do without any specialty equipment, without being a chef. Every basic home cook could can master any one of the recipes that's in the book. Now, since you're saying that you made several jars of marmalade, I'm taking it to mean that you, I mean, obviously you chose which recipes to include, but you also sort of developed the recipes and tested them yourself and prepared everything yourself. Yeah, along with a couple of good friends, we did it all. I would, uh, if there was some, if it was something that was unfamiliar to me, then I would try a recipe and, and give it to one of them to try out. If it was something I'd done myself, I would try and figure out the exact recipes and steps, and then I would give it to one of them to try to see if they could do what I could do. Yeah, so everything's been, you know, tried and trusted three times to to the point one of my friends is in Europe, so she did all the, you know, grams testing because if you see the book, it's in metric and it's in imperial and um, and European grams and weights and stuff. So we had a lot of fun with that. I'm like, I just call her up. Can you weigh some spinach for me? <laughs> so, yeah, it, it was a little bit of a team effort in the cooking. And then, you know, then there's all the people who did like one dish for me, tried one thing is, you know, you like this, try this for me, you know, or I would invite six or eight people for dinner and we would all try the thing together. And, 
sometimes it was a disaster and sometimes it wasn't. So yeah, it was a, it was a lot of fun. It took about two years to uh, get through all 66 recipes, but we did it. Yeah, I, I didn't realize it uh, would you know take that uh, amount of um, you know time commitment to uh, put it together and develop it. Well, yeah, and you know, don't forget we all have full time jobs as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> so part of your putting it together, you mentioned you organized it by by decades. Um, mm-hmm. did you learn anything interesting about how food preparation methods changed over the decades? Oh, absolutely, because, you know, the first decade is, you know, still in Edwardian England. Um, And, you know, just like Downton Abbey, they had big houses with fleets of of servants to do all the cooking. And so certainly in those first, in that first section in the the 1920s, which were some of them had been written a bit earlier, it's really all about upper class food, upper class service, you know, what, what was being shown around, around. But then, you know, by the time we get into the thirties and forties, we're getting, you know, more into the middle class and labor saving devices. Like for instance, when you've got an electric stove, you don't need a kitchen maid to be firing the coal or the wood in now, do you? So now you have less and less and, yeah, so it really changed who was doing the cooking. Was it a dedicated maid who'd been with you for 50 years? Was it, you know, a husband and wife team that had just, you know, settled in? Was it people who came in from the outside just for special occasions? You know, by the 50s, that's where we're at, you know. So it really did change a lot who, you know, who and how complicated it could be, the food could be. I mean, as we say, early in the decade, you know, the woman in a century, women would be directing the servants. And by the end of the decade, the women were the servants. <laughs> they were running the house themselves. So, yeah, it changed a lot. And food also changed a lot. Um, I do do a progression of, of steaks, for instance. In the 1920s, my steak recipe was fried in eight tablespoons of butter. Sounds yummy, but I think my... Yeah. (laughs) By the 40s, that was only three tablespoons of butter. And by the 70s, the 60s, 70s, it's in a marinade and being, you know, cooked on a grill. So, yeah. I I think that um, most people don't always appreciate cookbooks as something more than just a collection of recipes. I mean, you just described how, uh, you know, cookbooks give us an insight into culture and how, how cultural norms and things change. So what other kind of things does your cookbook off, offer in addition to the recipes? I know you mentioned well, that. Yeah, that kind of thing where I've given everybody a background of what was going on in each decade. So we talk about that, like, you know, that there were servants and then there's less servants and then what we do to hang on to the servants they've got. Uh, so there's a bit of that. There's a bit about, you know, how the war affected food and, and cooking and um, availability of stuff throughout England. So there's that. I mean, during the time Christie's writing, there was a depression, two world wars, 
like a lot, you know, man went to the moon and back. So yeah, a lot of things changed during her lifetime. So food was really one of them. So I did that. I introduced each decade. And then when we got into some of the individual dishes, I tried to tell, introduce people as to where they came from. Like an interesting thing about the omelets, you know, omelets were, you know, something that armies used quite a bit because you could just take eggs with anything and, you know, make it food for, for a group of people. So omelets, especially on the road, they fit perfectly. So, you know, ancient armies did a lot of, to, to advance omelet making in our world, which I thought was interesting. It is. <laughs> So tidbits like that, which are great fun to to learn and have at your disposal for your next dinner party. <laughs> you also have illustrations in your, your cookbook. Can you tell us some more about the drawings? Oh, the drawings are very just very um, small art deco drawings. This is not food. This is not food porn. This is this is Christie porn for all of us who love our love our Agatha. So the design of the book and of the drawings and everything all fit into that sort of theme of this is the type of life that um, Mrs. Christie led. And do you have a, a favorite Christie-inspired uh, recipe or beverage? Well, one of the ones I found most intriguing and enjoyed a lot was something called Windsor Soup. Now, you and I might call it a stew, really. But this was a favorite of King George the Third or the Fourth, and it sort of fell out of favor with um, Victoria. But then it was kind of making a bit of a a return. But then the war just shattered everything, and it sort of became this synonymous with you know bad soup at a at a at a cheap place, right out of a can during the war. So I thought, well, that was an interesting one. It had such great roots. It had fallen out, out of the wayside. What was this really like? And the reason it's called a Windsor soup is because everything in the soup is from Windsor. So there's lamb and there's beef and there's turnips and there's carrots and potatoes. And one of the most flavorful flavorful stews I've ever had in my life. It was wonderful. And my family asked me to make it again. Like they were all big thumbs up. So that was, that was kind of a surprise. So I've made it a couple of times since, and it's just a lovely soup size stew. If, if you were going to, uh, give someone advice for putting together an Agatha Christie inspired say Halloween party or Christmas dinner or what kind of, uh, um, well, I tell them to turn to the back of my uh, cookbook where I helpfully have put in some menus. Ah. And one of them is the Halloween murder mystery. And what I have suggested you serve for that is the Jolly Roger cocktail inspired by pirates, jack-o'-lantern deviled eggs, which is a savory little treat that looks like little jack-o'-lanterns. Then I went for roast partridge. It's a bit different. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a late September, early October type of um 
season. So by Halloween, you certainly would have this in season. And then we went, of course, with Devon boiled potatoes from And Then There Were None, because that's a big mystery. And then the one we haven't talked about for dessert, we have another delicious death by cake, which comes from A Murder is Announced, which a lot of people associate with the chocolate cake to die for, um, that Jane Asher, a British cook, famously did for one of the anniversaries of Christie, but she had, she took all the ingredients that are listed in that mystery. And she made what we think was the cake. And it was a cake that, that existed in real life because Agatha does thank, um, I think she dedicated even a murder is announced to the couple whose home she tried that particular cake at and loved it so much, but it's copyrighted. So I had to do my own cake. So this is another delicious death by cake, but certainly death by chocolate fits into the whole Halloween. Then we also have another one I put in here was, was Christmas. Now this is the Christmas Eve. Yeah, Christmas Eve. So I started with Lucy Isles Barrel's Mushroom Soup. Now this is a fun one from the 450 at Paddington where Lucy tells the inspector in no uncertain terms that that mushroom soup was not from a can. And here's what was in it. And so that's a very clever thing that's actually right in the writing of of the uh, mystery. Then we have Christmas Eve lobster souffle. That sounds good. Sounds lovely and very decadent because, you know, lobster in a souffle is just. Then we have the Sunday roast leg of lamb. Hmm. Yes. The Brits don't necessarily have a turkey. They may have a goose, but. Turkeys are very North American, so a little less there. So a lovely Sunday roast leg of lamb with all the trimmings. And then for dessert, Welsh cakes. Mm. Welsh cakes are these lovely, they're sort of biscuity, a cross between a biscuit, a cookie, and a cake, or, or a scone. Cross between a cookie, a scone, a biscuit, something like that, quite flat, but cut like with a cookie cutter, but it's got raisins and powdered sugar on it. And, mm. and it's a treat that Welsh children would have at Christmas every year. I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I was interviewed by one podcast and, and um, the two young people had tried all sorts of the recipes. So they were just, I would, we tried that one too. And it was, it was very fun. <laughs> but we were all starving by the end of the uh, of the podcast. Yeah, so I do have lots of other menus in there. There's breakfast with the Bantries, tea with Miss Marple, lunch with Ariana Oliver, and a book club smorgasbord. <laughs> so lots of treats and lots of um, suggestions on on how to you know play with these old recipes. Some of them, and you know honestly, some of them like oysters Rockefeller are really simple. People think that's a very tricky dish. No, not so much. And Mm. so, you know, there's lots of fun things in there you can impress your friends with. (laughs) There there, there aren't many 
sort of crime fiction and mystery inspired cookbooks. And there's a there's a Nero Wolf cookbook, uh, Mystery Writers of America put one out, but there there aren't a lot. So who do you think would make a good inspiration or subject for a, a cookbook? Um, um, if you well, ever- there is the Lord Lord Peter Whimsey also has a cookbook. But yeah, I don't know. So many, there's so many authors now that are putting recipes in their books and, um, you know, making that part of the mystery where the detective is a caterer or a restaurateur or something like that. So that's become very much a fashion in cozies, I've noticed. I don't know. Um, you know, I think of some of my favorites and, um, you know, V.I. Washarski. We could get some great Polish <laughs> Italian recipes out of her. And, but then I think about Kinsey Milhone and she really only liked peanut butter and pickle sandwiches and Big Macs. So, hmm. Not sure about that. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. If anybody's got some more great ideas, I'd like to hear them. And when will recipes for murder be available? Oh, it's out now. It came out on August 22nd. You can get it certainly at Barnes and Noble, Goodreads, Amazon, and hopefully at your local bookstore. And if it's not at your local bookstore, ask them and maybe they'll order a few extra copies so your neighbors can enjoy it too. Yes, sir. Invite all of your neighbors over to the party uh, based on the recipes in the book. Then they'll all want to run out and get their own copy. Exactly. Oh, I did hear of a group of teachers that are on a little away retreat, you know, friends. And one of them had this book and they spent the whole weekend reminiscing about old Agatha Christie's that they remembered and, you know, flipping through and trying one or two recipes as they went. And yeah, because yeah, it really is. It's for Christie lovers and cooking lovers and social history lovers and you know it's a nice little book it makes a great gift for almost anybody and where can readers connect with you if they want to find out more about the book or what you've learned in your your research or when the next book's coming out where can they where can they find you i do have an instagram account called recipes for murder and um i don't update it a lot but if something is happening, I tell you there first. Absolutely. Go out there and, and, you know, try a little English cooking. One I didn't mention was a coffee cake, which mm. is, in fact, a cake that tastes like coffee. Hmm. Very different to the North American version of a coffee cake. Ooh. So... Fun things like that. That's something you'll you'll discover. And also Agatha Christie, fun fact about Agatha Christie, she did have an American father. Okay, well, it was lovely to talk to you and uh, good luck with your podcast. And um, I look forward to hearing from you when you try a recipe. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And thank you listeners for tuning in to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. My guest today was Karen Pierce, author of Recipes for Murder, 66 Dishes That Celebrate the Mysteries of Agatha Christie. I'm Alexia Gordon, your host. Until next time, goodbye. I hope you
you enjoyed this episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. I'm Alexia Gordon, your host. Please support the podcast by leaving a five-star rating or review on whatever platform you listen on. Follow the podcast on Instagram at podcast underscore cozy, on Facebook at The Cozy Corner Podcast, and the web at thecozycornerwithalexiagordon.com. Follow me at Alexia Gordon Author on Instagram, alexiagordon.writer on Facebook, and alexiagordon.net on the web. Support me on Patreon at patreon.com slash author Alexia Gordon. And until next time, thanks for listening.